David Flaherty, Marketing Director for Washington Wine. This is Somlight. Somlight is a conversation series where we talk to some of our favorite wine pros around the country, talk a little bit shop, but more importantly, find out what makes them human and what makes them tech. I'm super excited to welcome to the show today, Jackson Gorbach. Jackson is born and bred native of Seattle, Washington. While finishing his creative writing degree at the University of Washington, he began his career at Seattle's esteemed Canlis Restaurant. For a decade, he worked there as a barista, bartender, kitchen server, lead server, and sommelier, eventually becoming the assistant wine director under Nelson DeKip. He passed his advanced sommelier exam with the highest score in 2012, earning the Rudd Scholarship and the Jeffrey H. Johnston Medal in the process. And then in 2017, passed the master sommelier exam. 2020 saw the launch of Jackson's new wine venture, Crunchy Red Fruit, which connects subscribers with sommelier curated wines from across the globe. Jackson, it's awesome to see you, my man. Thank you for being here today. First off, where are you and how are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. Thanks, David, for having me. I am at my house in Fall City, Washington. Uh, during the pandemic, we moved into the mountains because kind of city, we'd run out of space for our two kids and it was time to make a change. And I'm doing great. It's good to be here. Well, speaking of kids, I am also a father of a 10-year-old. I know you have a five and a 10-year-old. Yeah. First question is, I know that food and cooking are incredibly important to you, and you're trying to kind of pass on that love to the kids. I am as well, but I often fail at it. So what for you has been some of like the surefire ways to get your kids to like try and explore new foods? And then what are some of the, <laughs> the ways that have not worked? <laughs> that's That's a great... Great question. It's always a challenge for every parent, no matter like how adventurous you try to go. I mean, it's a, it's a struggle that's beset parents from time immemorial, just trying to get kids to eat period. For me, I think having frequent times where you're cooking is great because they'll drift in and out of the kitchen and onto a video game or onto listening to their Alexa music from a movie they like in their room or trying to play a board game. And so the more opportunities they have to cook or to engage with whatever's happening in the kitchen, the better. So if they can drift in and see that you're cooking, they might not always want to engage or help, but sometimes they do want to help. And the more opportunities you give them to just have a place to plug in and get their hands dirty and, and cook better. And I think that's kind of the way I've tried to approach it. And if they help cook something, they're way more likely to try it. I just got my daughter to try kind of a stinkier camembert brie yesterday and she didn't love it, but I just said, Hey, you just got to take one bite. And if you don't like it, I'm not going to make you eat it. Just try it. You know? Yeah. And, and that's the thing. It's just more opportunities. I also find like, if you have them cook where there's a, like a high power tool involved, it's better. <laughs> like we, I had them, uh, we have the, this food ninja and I made like chimichurri yeah. last week and he helped me make the chimichurri and he actually like tasted that. And I was like, this kind of like, this is not going to go well. And he was like, cool. I was like, right on. Cause That's you great. operated the ninja. Yeah. <laughs> when oh, you man. were in college, you spent a year abroad and I did as well in college. And like, for me, that completely changed my perspective on life. And even to today, you'd mentioned that that's where you kind of like really woke up to food and wine was in Italy and there. Can you just tell us a little bit about that experience for you and what, what that was like? I think what blew my mind the most was the way that food and wine were woven into the fabric of daily life and culture there. It was very common in Italy to take, and it's common in a lot of Latin countries or common in uh, Europe quite a bit is a, is an afternoon pause or siesta 
And so that's not just to sleep. Oftentimes it's to have a couple hour break from work where you leave work, you go home, you have an extended leisurely lunch and you maybe take a nap and then you get back to work later in the afternoon. And it's a pretty cool rhythm of life. And that I actually joined an Italian family a couple of times for that afternoon lunch. And there's like, no one's in a hurry. And you'll notice this when you dine in Europe, if you go to dinner, uh, you have to really ask for the check. You have to really like push to, to get moved out of dinner. It's not the same as, as here where it's like, Hey, turn and burn. Let's get those tables cleared. Let's get someone new in like dining. There is a sacred thing. And it's very understood that you just take your time at the table and you relax and you just like let the rest of the world drift away while you focus on who you're there with and what you're doing. And that is a really beautiful rhythm of life. And that's something I resonated with quite a bit. Yeah, man, I was abroad in England, but in my time there, I got to go to Spain and Portugal. And like, just that idea that the most beautiful part of the day, the tenderloin of the day, like, you know, 12 to two or two to four, whatever it was like, was for you. Yeah. Not for your career and not for emails. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. And then I assume that's napped for 20 plus years, like. Yeah, to build that into my day. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Let's jump ahead a little bit. So you kind of had your your interest peaked and in, in food and wine and the culture around that in Italy. You were finishing a creative writing degree at University of Washington here in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And then you began working at Canvas, where you probably didn't realize you'd spend the next decade of your life. <laughs> no. This is one of the most revered restaurants in the world. Obviously. You devoted a big part of your life to working there. From an insider's perspective, what, what was it like when you first started working there? And then what is it that makes that restaurant so legendary? I mean, the, what's, the, what's the magic? What's behind it? To, to step on the floor at Canlis for the first time, not as a guest who's just there to be swept up into the experience, but as someone who's trying to be part of the machine providing that experience, it's daunting, for one, especially if you don't come from a great tradition of fine dining. I mean, some people start working in fine dining when they're 15, 16. If you come from a European or more of like a New York traditional fine dining, some of those people get plugged in way early to understanding the currency and the, and the language of restaurants period and wouldn't be so daunted to step into it. But I didn't step into that until I was 23. And stepping into Canlis for the first time as like an employee or a prospective employee was a little scary. You have to learn a whole new way to walk and talk right? The verbiage you select for the way you communicate and the way you kind of get in and out of situations and the way you clear plates and the way you talk to people, everything. It's totally different. It's a whole new way to walk and talk. Even if, and and I've noticed this, even if you're coming from other fine dining traditions, if you have someone coming in from the Bay Area or New York or Chicago or uh, Louisiana, they come to Canlis and they have to relearn how to walk and talk too, because the Canlis is a very specific way it does things, but a really cool way and, and a really intentional and special way that you communicate and, and, and learn how to, you know, do the discourse of life on the restaurant floor. Before so. we talk more about the magic elements, cause like, again, I want to like tease that out a little bit. Cause it's like, you know, you, you were there for so long. You, you, you said how you walk in the restaurant and I, and I don't want to let that go by because I, I, I've always been amazed and impressed by the way that real ama- true professionals move through a restaurant, the way they live in their bodies, the way that they 
you know, the movements are almost balletic. Like they're just, there's an intentionality behind that. Is that what you mean when you say moving? And is that something that like, you just kind of pick up organically because everybody else around you is doing it? Or is that something that you actually train people? And if so, what do you, what do you, what do you say to them? Both. I mean, there is a way to move on the floor that's less clunky and abrasive and the way that you slip behind people without having to shout behind or corner as you go around a restaurant corner or slip in behind people in a service station. You know, you can do it in a really clunky and ungainly way, or you can do it in a very intentional and, you know, spatially aware way. And so it is just plain practice of being out on the floor and doing it. And there's also a training element to it. We actually brought in ballet instructors more than once to just demonstrate how they move and to give us some insights and some input into the way we moved on the floor. Uh, so when you say balletic, that's real. I mean, we actually brought in ballet instructors onto the floor at Canlis to help us and train us how to move better. Do you remember what some of the things are that they told you? A lot of it's just bodily and spatial awareness. It's not so much like, oh, you have to put your feet this way. You have to put your shoulders this way. It's it's more right. like, how well do you pay attention as your body's moving? How mindful are you of the space you're occupying? And then when you do put your feet together, how can you make that more legato and more beautiful and more smooth? You know, there is an artistry to it. And, I, and if you've been there for a few years, you start to really take pride in the way that you move and the way that you execute your duties on the floor. Was that something that trickled into your regular life off the floor? And, and like, is that something that you embraced in your life too? And your friends yeah. would be like, what's up Jackson? You're kind of walking to, to the. <laughs> I had a big learning curve to get from like the clunky human movement that I was embodying to like something graceful and balletic. I think one of the first one of the first weeks on the floor, I had this guy take me aside. He's like, hey, can you stop walking like a professional wrestler? <laughs> and I was like, what? He's like, I saw you walking down <laughs> down through the lower level east like you were just the lower Lanai area. And I was like, oh, man, OK, I got to think about that. I got to work on that. But, yeah, you know, there I, I did extend to other areas of my life. When I'm at home, I'm trying to move gracefully in the kitchen and all that for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's um, Bobby Stuckey, who's a restaurant owner in, in Boulder. I think, you know, it's a lot of these like almost like cues that help people kind of just, instead of saying like, don't do this and don't do this, you want to give them something that kind of frees them. And, and I, yeah. I think he was talking about like soft hands Yeah, like during wine service, like literally concentrates on like his hands are soft. And that sounds kind of like silly, but then when you actually like start to try it, you're like, oh yeah. Cause it, those yeah. movements, everything you know as a guest in the restaurant like everyone moving around you especially at your table all of that puts people at ease right yeah. uh, there's all this non-verbal movement um i i know when you start at canvas that you get a massive training book and it's everything in there from you know the food to the wine or whatever else they're teaching about service and hospitality like did, did you how long did it take or does it take somebody i know it's different before, like, all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, this all now I'm embodying everything the, the the information, the way to move, the who does what, like, how long does that take? It takes a couple of months to even get to a sort of baseline level of proficiency. Also, in regards to movement, um, the soft hands is a great piece of advice. The other thing that I think made a big difference for me and for everyone else on the floor was learning how to 
how to embody that last inch. So you can move fast. You can bring your plates through the dining room quickly because you do need to be speedy on a dining room floor and, you know, be economical with your time and movements, but not just speeding to the very last little bit you speed. And then when you're on your way in with the plate, that last inch, you, you catch yourself and you slow down and you gracefully drop that plate. Or when you're putting a glass into a rack, you, you get, get up there quick, you move to it quickly. You bring glasses quickly and pull them off your tray. And that last little bit as you're about to put them in the rack, it's a very slow, deliberate movement and shows intentionality and you break less glassware and you drop less plates that way. That's awesome. Uh, I'm going to try that when I'm like writing, you know, like an email, it's just like that last little like space bar touch. Just, yeah. Just, (laughs) yeah. I mean, it sounds like, you know, I actually personally love this stuff. I think like, you know, movement and kind of being aware of your movement is fascinating. But for those not interested in movement study, let's move on because I want to ask you, you know, obviously at Canlis, it's the services, the level of services always high and always being worked on and always, always a thing. But, you know, a lot of people in the, in the industry, they talk about, yes, their service, which is mechanical and learning those, but then there's also hospitality and Canlis has both, you know, incredible service, incredible hospitality. What, what are like three things, if you could describe what you learned about hospitality in your time there, what would they be? I'll start with a hard, a hard thing first. Hospitality isn't always super friendly interactions. Hospitality is what you do sometimes when something difficult happens. It's not always just everyone's happy to see each other all the time and you just, you're just automatically a rock star every, in every interaction. Hospitality sometimes is a difference in where a guest feels like things are going to be and where you feel like things are going to be. And there's a confusion uh, either on their part or your part. Maybe you've not done a great job reading them. And so hospitality is not just the happy stuff. Sometimes it's where the rubber meets the road in relationship. And I think it's how do you respond when maybe someone else isn't exhibiting a lot of visible hospitality towards you? Hospitality is a lot of times, how do you choose to respond? And it's not always just being obsequious and bending over and doing exactly what the guest tells you to do. It's not, that's not hospitality. That's being ordered around. And that's not, doesn't, no one feels good about that. But as long as you as a hospitality professional are always turning towards relationship and seeking to understand and seeking to see and hear and uh, listen to the person who's opposite from you, then there's always an opportunity to make something great happen, right? And that means, hey, we messed this up. I'm turning towards you and saying, hey, I'm in a relationship with you. How can I help? How can I fix this? How can I make this better? Or hey, these were your expectations. They didn't get met, but I'm turning towards you. I'm saying, hey, I'm here to help you. And as long as the guest also turns towards you, then you can make really a lot of magic happen. Even even if like maybe the first instance of something not working out the way they hoped it would doesn't go great. If they turn towards and say, what do you recommend? Like I'm I'm here or I'm going to listen to your idea about how to make this better. That turning towards is the foundation of relationship in a lot of ways, and it's foundation of good hospitality, as soon as one of those parties refuses to turn towards and just turns away instead, it's really hard to execute hospitality. It's incumbent on us as hospitality professionals to always do the turning towards and to, to seek to understand where the other person's coming from. But it doesn't always end in a great result because sometimes the other person turns away. And I guess that's like... I hope that addresses your question, at least in in part, because 
that's one of the most foundational things I've had with conflict as it relates to hospitality in the restaurant. Cause, cause it's not always perfect, but as long as you're willing to turn towards and, and dig deep, then you can make anything happen. If, if at least as long as the person's willing to work with you. So is every guest win over a bowl? No. And what do you do when they're not Nathan Lane, the, the actor was, yeah. uh, I heard him talk one time. He was talking about like when he was doing comedy you know, and I think a lot of actors, when they're doing comedy, if the audience isn't laughing, they're like, what am I, what am I doing wrong? Whereas he was like, they didn't get it. It's not me. But yeah. that's an amazingly emotional, mature place to be. Are you able to do that? Like, I mean, I, I think a lot of us have the people pleasing nature, especially. Yeah. In- oh, I certainly do. And I, I certainly like I can I can hardly remember all the people I made happy who had an, had an incredible night with. But guess who I do remember? I remember like those five awful tables that refused to meet me halfway and is, yeah. or that I maybe just didn't do the right thing to. And I, I somehow lost them along the way. I was trying really hard, but maybe what I had to offer wasn't what they wanted. There are some people you think aren't going to be win overable who end up being really cool in the end because they just want to see that you care. And hey, maybe the restaurant messes up or you mess up. But as long as you keep pushing and saying, hey, like, I'm not going to abandon this, like, I believe in this relationship, then sometimes you get met with this amazing reward of like, hey, like, yeah, it didn't start out great tonight. But like, I love the way you brought that around. And I love the way that we stayed in contact and or that you had someone else come over and and talk. Um, That was a big lesson early on to learn is like, sometimes you aren't the guy and or or you aren't the, aren't the person to handle that and so learning when you needed to tag team out like speaking of professional wrestling uh, metaphors you can't you had to tag your partner put them in the ring and let them go take on and sometimes that whole other energy that another person's personality and comportment and humor style brings is exactly what that guest needs they don't need more of you they need someone else <laughs> yeah. uh, and knowing when to tag yourself out and say, Hey, you know what? I'm not the person that's going to turn this situation around. Those were always like hard, but good lessons to learn. You know, like the movement and the soft hands or, you know, the, the final inch that you talked about, or were there any mantras that were trained to the staff there that you remember or that you really were, you know, held on to? Tons. Some of which I think have continual application in my life today. Some, some don't, but I think, there's definitely a few things that have been like really beneficial and helpful. One of the early things from my time there was keep the promise. And it sounds like a little amorphous to say just by itself, but when you think of it in the context of a place like Canlis, uh, it makes a lot more sense because you're basically, when people walk in that door, you're promising them that they can trust you with their special night, their time with their family, their last dinner with their mom who has cancer, their last birthday with their brother who lives across the country, who's, you know, and maybe about to move out of the country. There's lots of situations that are really high touch and, and sensitive that they're trusting us with. And it's incumbent on us to value that trust and keep that promise. And that's something I take with me to crunchy red fruit. And I take with me to my interactions with people outside of those walls you know, when people approach you to do business with you or to buy wine from you or whatever it might be, they're entrusting you with their money they're trusting you with their time. And it's incumbent on you to treat that with value. That's awesome. I love that. You've had some amazing accomplishments in your career. You, you crush the advanced 
exam in 2012, which in itself. 10 years ago? Oh my gosh, that's a long time ago. <laughs> that in itself is, you know, one of the hardest tests in the world, let alone what you did five years later when you passed the master sommelier exam. I think today there's still only 270 people that have passed this test. It's one of the hardest tests in the world for those that don't know. Like many though, you, you, you did have to try it on multiple occasions, but let's go back to those years because if I'm not mistaken, I think there was a, maybe your first kid in there. All oh yeah. As well, I mean, were those years totally bonkers and how are you able to balance, or, I probably didn't even balance, but how are you able to survive and be productive with the busy career, the family life, and oh all gosh. the studying that you have. I, I honestly would love to talk about that. It's hard, and I, I haven't always gotten it right. And balancing with a restaurant career, it's hard enough. Trying to add on all this wine stuff, trying to remodel a house while I'm working 55 hours a week at Canlis, and trying to do these study for these exams all at the same time. Brock was born in April 2012. I took my advanced exam like today. 10 years ago. So I, he got born and a week later, less than a week later, I flew down to Anaheim to go take my advance. And Gretchen, wow. my wife had been super supportive. She'd been helping me study. She'd been laying in the hospital bed after her C-section with an iPad quizzing me on um, <laughs> wine questions. Right. And then I'm like, are you, are you sure you're cool? If I go down to California to take this exam, she's like, go, you did, you, know, you got to do this. You've been prepping for it. And my Brock was still in the NICU in a, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, pain and intense stuff around that time, but they were like, no, go, go do it. And I went down and stayed with some good friends of ours and, and passed and did, and it came out, came out with a good result. I was like, maybe it was just that intensity that time that got me the blinders on and focused, you know, it took another five years before I passed MS. That's how much, even from advanced, which was already hard, but that's how much like the difficulty level of taking the MS exam, it, how much it requires. Right. But balancing it all is tough. It's, it's, again, it's not something I've always gotten right. Made mistakes, you know, needed to ask my family for like, Hey, I'm, I'm back. Like, let's, let's kind of recalibrate. Let's do this better this time. Let me like, make sure I give you the amount of time you deserve and not just me and my studies and my thing, you know, and it's easy in the wine world or the restaurant world to get kind of swept up in what's going on with your career and your stuff. And the most important people are like right here in this house with me. And those are the people like need the most time. So, and that's, that's what I want to give it to. So how did you, I mean, how did you practically do that? I mean, like, you know, working 10, 11 hours on the restaurant floor and giving yourself to every table and every person you work yeah. with, like, that's exhausting. And then, you know, then to come home and try to study on top of that. I mean, like, like literally, like practically yeah. speaking, like, how did you do that? Were you super compartmentalized with your time? Like, how much were you sleeping? I mean, I know it's, you only have so much time in the day and so much yeah. energy in the day. I mean, it definitely helps to work somewhere where you can kind of study while you're at work for better or for worse. I mean, sometimes my studies would distract me from on the stuff, on the job stuff at Canlis. But then, you know, a lot of just the daily discourse of work there, it's like working with high-end Burgundy and Bordeaux and great Piedmont Reds and great Napa Reds. And I'm tasting some of the things that the exam is about, really. So it's helpful to be in a place like that to study for that exam. It really is. And then I think like that song movie from, I guess, what was that? 2012, it came out about the master exam. Yeah. That's, you know, depicting those dudes who are in the movie 
in their kind of mid to late 20s taking the exam and not having kids and not really having like that big of external commitments, you can just crush flashcards for nine hours a day and feel like that's what the best way to study is. Um, and that's kind of what's depicted in the movie is people just like going insane and racking their brains with the longest study sessions ever. Um, that's a very showy thing for film's sake, but I don't think it's the best way to study. I think efficiency over time is way better than nine hour, four hour flashcard sessions. And that's just what I embodied. I said, good, every day, study a half hour, study an hour, be consistent, show up to study group every week. And it doesn't have to be a three hour study group. It can be one hour. And but everyone comes prepared with questions. Everyone gets in, dials it in, is organized with their time. Those types of things were way more helpful to pass the exam than just feeling like you had to know everything, study everything, come up with some kind of weird idea of what it means to be an expert without just being consistent on a day-to-day basis. So, yeah, it, it, that's, that's what life to me also feels like today too, is like, you really only have maybe 15 minutes, half an hour, maybe an hour for yourself. So what do you do with that? Do you, you know, troll your way through Instagram for 20 minutes and you're like, cool, now I'm on to my next thing. Yeah, that's easy to do. Are you intentional about that time? Yeah. That's something we all struggle with. That's, you, it's tough. It's tough after you pass the exam. It's like, what do I do with my life now? I, I, I was gonna ask, organized. literally going to ask you that when you pass the exam, <laughs> what was that like? I mean, all of a sudden now, like this massive goal, what probably felt like a huge monkey on your back, like all the responsibility of your family, like I, I'm devoting five years of my life. We're going we're gonna to pass yeah. it. All of a sudden you did it. Uh, and that is off your back now. <laughs> when did that actually sink in? that you'd accomplished it. Uh, it took, it took a few months. Yeah. And I'll say this to anyone who's watching this, who, who wants to become a master sommelier for career opportunities. Don't do that. It's not, it, it never should be about what you're going to earn after it or some great job you might think you're going to get after it. There was a time, you know, 15, 20 years ago when you'd pass your MS exam and like the Bellagio or Krug would come in and just slap you a big contract and like hire you the next day. That doesn't happen anymore. And that's okay. And, and that wasn't necessarily healthy to just say, Hey, you've got this professional credential. Now you're automatically inserted in as if you weren't competent the day before you got your credential. And so, you know, I've had to struggle with it because I passed my exam. Great. I'm a master sommelier now, but I don't really like love to parade that around as if that's what gives me worth as a person and a professional doesn't it's never been what's made me who I am and that's what actually what you need to pass the exam if you let the exam I've told this to people who are prospective studying if the exam tells you something essential about who you are as a person you're probably not going to pass and it, it I mean it can be like hey I want I have a goal I want to achieve I'm going to achieve it get it great but if that has a, a significant inverse relationship to your self-esteem, then it's probably an unhealthy place to be. So that's just something I've thought about a lot. And yeah, no, there's not, you don't just get like showered with money upon passing the exam, nor should you. Uh, You have to carve your own path in this industry, regardless of whether you have professional certifications. It might mean that there's more travel opportunities. It might mean that people value your opinion on certain things a little more, but far be it from any of us who have some pen that other people don't to like pretend like we're better somehow or to 
pretend like our opinions matter more, but they don't. Um, it's, it's good to push yourself to really high standards and learn things and grow yourself, but it's not okay to use it as a barometer of self-worth, I guess, is the best I could address that with. In 2020, remember 2020? Yes. <laughs> you, you launched your business. Yeah. Uh, crunchy Red Fruit. You know, wow, what, what a time to launch a business, first of all. <laughs> but before we talk about, you know, what it was like at launch and what it's like today, the entrepreneur spirit, the entrepreneur lifestyle that you have, you know, whether you knew it or not, you are. Uh, can you give us a sense though, that time, like leading up to like making that leap into doing your own thing? I think a lot of people in this industry think about that, you know, but whether it's real or not, but then you get on that path and you're like, I actually might be doing this. And that's a probably pretty scary, vulnerable, exciting thing. Like, yeah. how did you determine what you wanted to do? And what was that process like for you as that idea went from just a kernel to like, holy crap, this is going to be yeah. reality. <laughs> Uh, it took, it, it was sentiments I was starting to feel uh, my last year or so at Canlis. Having someone bring in a Gruner Veltliner that was, let's say, like $14 wholesale that was like really cool, or a pet nat that was $23 wholesale that was really cool. But it was like, pet nat doesn't belong on the Canlis wine list. And I'm like, why not? And that was kind of like our, our MO at the time. I was part of creating that wine list. So it wasn't like it was just someone else's opinion, but it was kind of like, well, if we're going to sell a glass of bubbly, we might as well sell a glass of champagne because we can make more dollars per sale. And that's a lot of, where a lot of fine dining restaurants are still, I've talked to other wine directors at fine dining restaurants and they're not working with Pet Nat because Pet Nat is cheap and champagne's expensive. And you need to, if you have a person sitting in a seat, you need to have them spend 30 to 50 bucks on a glass of champagne. That's the way you make money. That's the way you justify your existence as a fine dining restaurant. And I felt like bummed out that I couldn't show people those sorts of wines that were maybe not as traditionally thought of as the, the big, great 10 wines, Napa, Cab, Champagne, Burgundy, Bordeaux, Piedmont, Tuscany, Aussie Shiraz, whatever, like the 10 sort of things that people think of when they think of fine wine, it was a missed opportunity to me. And I really like wanted to find a way to engage with wines that maybe didn't have the prestige level, but to me had the quality and intrigue level uh, and find a way to engage with those that, that where they maybe don't fit in a super white tablecloth situation. And then after leaving Canlis in 2018, I went to work at McCarthy and Shearing, which is a, a retailer here in Seattle and loved that. But they were also kind of couched in traditional, like our customers buy Bordeaux and they buy Chianti and they buy Bourgogne Rouge. And I was like, yeah, but what about this insanely delicious Pinot Donis from the Loire Valley that I think is every bit as compelling and interesting as some of those other wines, but because it doesn't have the recognition, it's not getting attention. And, and you go into a Safeway or QFC or Costco, I'm going to name drop because I don't care. And you look at the shelf and it's like, wow, that there's 20 different Napa Valley Sauvignon Blancs or California Sauvignon Blancs. And there's no Bordeaux Blanc. There's maybe one Loire Valley Sauvignon Blanc. Like, why are we telling the story about wine? There's so much diversity and incredible depth of experience and 
there's so many interesting grapes, whether that's Xenomavro from Greece or whether that's, you know, Shirello from the Cava region or from Penedes or whether that's Mencia from Bierzo in Spain or Schiava. All the really interesting grapes that have such a great story to tell about the people who made them and the place they come from. And those stories are not being communicated at a, at a big retail level. And that was so frustrating to me. So there was missed opportunities in restaurants. There was missed opportunities in retail to tell the story of all these interesting grapes and interesting people that aren't making it to the most visible places. And I wanted to start something to connect that with people. And to get back to answering your question about what, what was that lead up like, that was kind of the impetus for it. And then as I started getting ready to launch a company, I'm like, wait, how are we going to make money? How's this going to work out? I don't know. I kind of still am figuring that out. I'll be real honest. But it's also really rewarding and good. Let's talk about crunchy red fruit then, because you know you just talked about the sort of focus on the wine and what you want to do and, and you're perspective now in the wine industry that you didn't feel like had an outlet what a, like let's talk about the business side of it then too right because it's one thing to pick the great wines and you know you have the way to source them and you probably have a built-in at least starter audience because of your your time at canlis and mccarthy sharing but what approaches to business because this is a business i think a lot of times in this industry whether you're a wine producer or you're in the industry, it's so easy to get swept up in the romance and people don't think about the business. And then all of a sudden they have to learn the business. <laughs> what approaches to business did you pick up along the way in working at Canlis or at McCarthy Engineering that you had to apply, that you were glad to have that experience that you could apply yeah. it to your business? Big thing I took from McCarthy Engineering was just email marketing works and it's continued to work for us. Just people will buy wine if you tell a compelling enough story via an email. And I've tried to embody that and go further. I, I used to write the emails from McCarthy and Sharing. And but you always like a lot of the audience is, you know, more traditional, older. They don't like colorful or language being used. They don't necessarily get all the cultural references. And my writing for my own brand lets me just go off the rails a little bit and just like be silly. Like I did a Top Gun comparison with one of my like wines the other day, or I printed out someone, I had a detractor who was angry at me that I bought like all the, all of one wine. It was like eight cases, but they were like, they sent me this like furious expletive filled email. And so I bleeped out the person's name. I blanked it out. And then I used that, their angry email to me to uh, talk about how cool this wine was and to sell more of it. And I bought it all again, but like just doing traditional stuff like that, that maybe wouldn't have been super well received by like a more old school, traditional audience having the freedom to do it, but practicing my chops, writing emails at McCarthy and sharing, practicing my chops, writing wine descriptions at Canlis. Like for a long time, I wrote almost all the by the glass tasting notes. And so finding a way to make things appetizing to people and finding my voice was a lot of it, whether that's through talking people to, to people table side and like, hey, you got maybe 30 seconds to sell this person on a wine. You don't have a half hour. They got food coming. They need wine down. How can you communicate what's most essential about this wine in three to six words and then go get it from the seller once they say yes? And, and that those that like learning how to be concise and 
and not uh, overly flowery in my language was something I brought from my creative writing background, but further refined at both Canlis and McCarthy and Shearing. And you need that if you're going to sell wine online. You need to learn how to not be annoyingly verbose and how to cut to the chase and give people really good sound bites and really good snippets about something without overloading them. What was that first year of running your business like? I mean, obviously the pandemic hit, you know, right at probably the start of your business. Yeah. <laughs> Great timing. I bet the lessons that you learned in that first year came pretty fast and pretty heavy. Again, anyone, you know, listening to your story that is considering jumping into business, like what were some of those hard knocks that you learned yeah. pretty quickly right out of the gate that you, you didn't really foresee coming? Yeah, great question. I think the pandemic taught us to pivot quickly. So pivoting and just figuring out, hey, let's try something new this week. Let's try doing a relief box this week. That was one of our big pivots from 2020 is like, hey, let's restaurant people out of work. They're struggling. Let's do a relief box. We raised $10,000 in the matter of months uh, for restaurant people just by giving away proceeds from our relief box. And that was like pretty cool lesson to learn. It's like, hey, if you... If you rally with a cause, you can get more customers. And and I w- it wasn't completely magnanimous. I was like, hey, if I, we do a relief box, it'll give us some visibility. The goal was not visibility intrinsically. The goal was to benefit out-of-work restaurant people. But I said, hey, relief boxes allow people to engage with our brand, connect with us, learn what we do. And I can just kind of send out some wines that are really tasty and teach people that it's, you know, you can get some wine, but you can also give some money in the same time. And that was a really helpful thing to learn early on. We pivoted to that inspired us to pivot to more boxes. So we launched a rosé box and a spritz box and have continued to launch new boxes as time goes on, just to try new things and get different segments of our customers interested. And so, so the first year was just all about pivoting. It was also just DIY. Like when you're the business owner and you, and it's your wine that needs to get moved from place to place, you just need to figure out where to put it and where you're going to pack it. And I didn't have a warehouse until about a year in. And so, so we would, we borrowed space from Curlew Cellars. And so Ryan Crane, who I actually just had lunch with at Loretta's, which is a killer burger, Ryan Crane just came down. We had lunch together, but he, for the first almost first full year, like six, seven months, I got to use Curlew's floor space because they were closed for pandemic reasons. So I used their floor space to store my cardboard, store my product and wine. We just kind of had it sitting on pallets there. And then when it was packing day, wait till the winery guys were gone and then I'd call up someone to help me pack and we would just charge and go pack and get wines out the door and get shipping labels on. It was just kind of a scramble and figuring out that you need space, you need time, you need preparation, all this stuff. I was not very good at customer relations and organization. And I had to learn those skills and then uh, brought on an employee at the end of the first year that has been with us since then and has done really great. So for many, you know, running their own business is a dream opportunity, but many people don't know the sacrifices that they're going to have to make to do it. For any out, anybody out there that, you know, you could talk to that's considering starting their own business, especially in the wine industry, what advice would you give them? It is really hard to make money in wine. It's, I mean, just look at the cost of product right now, cost of importing right now, cost of shipping, cost of packaging, cost of 
you know, having a space to do all the picking and shipping and packaging, um, trying to stand out from the crowd. I mean, it is tough. It's tough to get, it costs a lot of money to get new customers just to find them and get them. I had the benefit of a little bit of an audience of just like, whether that's my own Instagram followers or people who are old canless guests or old McCarthy and sharing friends or whatever I knew just from the wine industry that I was able to catch on a little bit when things first started that has helped kind of push some momentum, but still it didn't go as fast as I thought it would. And it's, you know, it's a challenge and that's me speaking as a person that's credentialed and has been working in wine for 10 plus years. That was still, it's still hard for me. Um, So I would just say, you know, where are you going to find your margin? And that's been the big challenge. I think my goal has always been to get to a certain amount of subscriber number, and then that'll allow us to do things like start to direct import more of our own product, which will very much help us in the margin game. But then we couldn't have foreseen the supply chain issues and the pandemic and the fact that containers cost almost four times or more than they used to cost uh, at the start of the pandemic and cardboard six, seven, eight price increases across the board. My boxes, so I, I started by having a really cool box designed spec just for us with our own print on it. And it's gorgeous and stunning. And they already started pretty expensive, but I said, hey, it's it communicates our brand. It's cool, it fits, it's us. Even though it's expensive, I want it to be our thing. Well, that box started at 13 bucks a unit cool. and now it's like almost $20 a unit. It became totally untenable for us to continue using custom boxes so we just had to switch to like a standard blank shipper and you know, it's cardboard people throw it away. So it's like not that big of a deal, yeah. but it had, it was a little bit of like a little part of me died inside where I had, when I had to make that decision, yeah. but that's just one of the weird things that I never thought I'd have to deal with that I had to deal with. Yeah. I think a lot of people, you know, if you're running a restaurant wine program and you know, you're understanding your cost of goods and you're understanding profit and loss and, you know, you can kind of get like, oh yeah, I, I understand the business of wine or I'd imagine on the retail side too. Like, but all of a sudden now there's a whole new world of logistics and shipping and, you know, yeah. all these things that you probably thought you understood. <laughs> and all of a yeah. sudden it's, it's like a cold water in the face. Yeah, it really is. And, and you got to learn quick because this is your livelihood. We're learning. Yeah. We're still yeah. learning. Yeah. Are, are you, are you glad you did it? <laughs> I am. I, honestly, I'm glad I did it. I have really good flexible schedule. So when we get off the phone in a little while, I'm going to go pick, pick my kids up from school and hang out with them for the evening. I have the ability to do that now. And that's huge to me. That is huge. At some point, I really want to start a brick and mortar shop, which will take some more time away. But at the same time, like it'll help the business thrive. And But it's just been really good having time to spend with my kids. All right, my friend, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Let's go. What is your go-to dish to make when you have dinner guests over? Follow up, big dinner party or small dinner party? Uh, your choice. Okay. More interesting. I think if, if I had my, <laughs> if I had to pick, I think David Chang's Bosom. Ah, I've had it. Yeah. I've made that now like 20 times. Made it for smaller four-person parties, gotten two huge... Boston butts, like eight to 10, eight to 12 pounds a piece and done two of those in an oven for bigger parties. It's, it's pretty hard to mess up. So overnight salt and sugar cure, and then 
throw it in a 300 degree oven until the pork just melts when you twist it. And then you serve it with lettuce wraps and kimchi and a really delicious sherry and soy sauce, sherry vinegar, soy sauce. It's so good. Now, if I'm not mistaken, because I, I had the bosom at, at Momofuku a couple of times, and it, I think it was also served with like oysters on the half shell, right? Yeah, you Did can. You- I've done it with oysters before. I personally think the pork's already so salty that adding like another saline element, uh-huh. almost you almost lose the oyster. I kind of like oysters on their own and pork on its own, but I it's fun. I mean, it's a cool thing and it adds that like burst of saltiness, but it's already pretty salty pork if you do it right. So yeah. The, What's the most surprisingly great wine and food pairing you've ever had? <laughs> uh, this is kind of my, one of my mainstays. It's like part of my personal story is the nacho Doritos and Palo Cortado Sherry. Oh, wow. Definitely. I love it. What's one house project that you have on your list that you absolutely must one day complete? There's one timber in our deck that keeps like your foot keeps going through it and it, it needs to get done. Uh, it's, it's like a rotten one rotten deck board that if I step out onto it, I'll just go right through it. <laughs> you might want to, yeah, you might want to expedite that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you like scary movies? Yeah. What's your favorite scary movie? I really like the the descent. Ooh. The original okay. descent is really yes. good. I, I recall. Uh, do you have opinions about socks? Yeah. What are they? <laughs> we are right now in the um in the sock convergence zone where I wasn't sure today whether to wear my slip-on shoes with like no-show socks or whether to wear my boots with long socks. And I think about it a lot. I almost, so you can do the opposite where I'd wear my slip-on shoes, but wear the long socks with them. And we're right in the period of time in Seattle and Western Washington weather where it could go either way. Like, hey, it's a rainy, slightly cold day. I'm going to go with the boots. Or like it might get sunnier later and I'm going to regret wearing like really heavy boots and long socks. So I'm going to play the odds and go with the short socks. That's my sock conversation. I, I might be doing something wrong, but the no-show socks, as you call them, like I don't know how to get through a day where they don't slip under my heel and then they mm. become like a wad in my shoe. Is that an issue that you experience? I have experienced it before, but if you get good quality ones, they tend not to. Like if you get the stance ones are pretty good. Sperry ones are good too. We're going to include a link to Jackson's favorite no-show socks at the end of this <laughs> All right. so stay, stay tuned. What do you do for stress relief? Video games is one. Big into a game called Hades right now. It is a roguelike. So like you do multiple runs and you die at the end and go back to the beginning, but you get a little bit better each time. Kind of like Dark Souls is a roguelike, right? But I'm not into Dark Souls or Elden Ring. I'm into Hades. And it's beautifully written, incredible voice acting. I'm going to send some wine down to the people who developed it because I love their game so much. That's awesome. Um, that and playing guitar is my other way of relieving stress. Uh, what do you have a go-to hangover cure? You have to. Uh, it used to be uh, going to Senor Moose and Ballard. Ah, uh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> and but now I, but now I live out in Fall City, so uh, just anything on the menu at, at Senor Moose, or is there a specific dish? I would get the machaca con huevos. Oh, yeah. yeah. Man. Yeah. yeah, real good. Plus a big, plus a big Bloody Mary from them. Plus a big coffee. Can't go wrong. Call it a day. 
out here in fall city it's usually like making my own breakfast sandwich from scratch and a big cup of coffee and sometimes exercising honestly just getting like a little bit of exercise early in the morning can if you drank a little bit too much the night before it just sets you on the right pace even though it's painful (laughs) totally what's the most obnoxious thing you've ever seen a restaurant guest do yo that's a deep that's a deep cut uh I know you got some stories. You can you can you can share the public one and tell me the private one later. <laughs> Bro, I've seen some I've seen some shit on the canvas floor. Sorry, you're gonna have to bleep that out. It's an adult. I think I think getting up and pushing Mark Canlis was a was a pretty uh, pretty heavy one. A, a guest got up and pushed. Oh yeah, the owner of the restaurant. Yeah. Yeah, because he didn't like something he said to him because he was asking him to kind of like keep it down and like, hey, you need to chill. This is a, you know, people are dining here. And the guy was like, what, do you want to fight me? And like, you know, like you got to you gotta have some real hubris. A lot of people don't realize when Mark comes over to the table and talks to him that like he's the owner. They're just like, think he's like some other manager guy. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, Mark, Canlis, nice to meet you. <laughs> uh, last rapid fire. I know you love to cook and uh, I know you like to cook over the fire and you, you know, you like grilling and all that. So yeah. for us at home that like to grill uh, myself included, what's the best way to up your home steak making game for live fire cooking or for stovetop? Let's go live fire. I think whether it's, I guess it, this would be my advice for both is just paper towel, like pull your steak out a couple hours ahead of time or like an hour or two paper towels on both top and bottom to dry out the surface on each side and replace the paper towels a couple times as it soaks through. So you're getting the driest steak you can, because it's going to help form more crust. And it's also that time out in, in the room temperature is going to help regulate temp. And you don't want to throw a cold steak on the grill um, because then you'll get really hard cooked outside and really undercooked inside. I've gotten the best results by resting my steak a couple hours before cooking drying it out and then giving it a hot heat and giving it as many flips as it needs, but not overdoing it there and resting it under foil or at a low temp after cooking. So it can have some time for the juices to kind of coalesce. Are you a reverse mm-hmm. sear guy? Cause like that's com- completely changed. The yeah, way. I've, I've gotten great results from reverse sear. I think I get the best results from reverse sear when it's a bigger cut, like yeah. a huge, steak or a big prime rib or a big pork belly or whatever the, the, I get really good results when it's a big piece sometimes it's harder to pinpoint even for reverse sear if you have thinner steaks it's it can be tough to get it just perfect but yeah reverse sear is great I love nice. it good I'm on the right track uh did you bring a pen and piece of paper I did yeah all right so we're gonna do the some light drawing challenge okay so I'm gonna have you draw um <laughs> I'm going to have you draw while t- teaching us about the wines from a specific region. So for the picture, um, I'd like you to do a side-by-side. So Jackson walking like a wrestler next to Jackson moving with balletic movement, <laughs> your interpretation of how I'm going to give you 45 seconds. And at the same time, I want you to teach us about the wines from the Duero Valley in Portugal. Yeah, you got it. This is good. You're already like, you're you're like, let's go on your mark, sir. Get set. Begin. 
the Douro River Valley is in northern Portugal. Uh, the Douro uh, River starts in Spain and goes all the way to uh, out to the Atlantic Ocean. And you'll see many grapes grown along the Douro slash Douro River. Uh, most chief among them would be uh, Tempranillo, or as it's called in Portugal, Aragonês. When you get to Portugal, it's uh, called Tariga Nacional. How am I, how am I doing time-wise? Oh, man. Great. Okay. You got 10 seconds left. It's a hot, dry region, and there's lots of, uh, <laughs> lots of grapes growing around, and pretty much that's what you got. Uh, just a second. I'll, I'll give you an extra couple of seconds because this okay. ballet, I can't wait to see ballet, Jackson. I'm, I'm so excited. Okay, I, I'm now I'm like taking advantage, um, but I just need to I just need a head. Yeah, you're really taking advantage of my okay. extra few seconds. Oh, what? Whoa, dude! You can tell well, that when the professional wrestler guy has a leotard or a or a underwear on. <laughs> what? I, okay, I think it's official. You may have actually crushed the Samurai Drawing Challenge more than any guest so far. Why is comic book artist not on your resume? <laughs> I, I, I think I, my first major in college was like visual art before I changed it to wow. music and then eventually to creative writing. Dude. Basically, that's why I work in restaurants is because I was a liberal arts and creative major. So yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> Crazy man! Wow, I want to give you like five minutes and see what you could do. Wow, thank you for that. That was awesome. Yeah. Last question for you. You know, you've spent your career here in Washington and Seattle. In your time here, you've become incredibly close with so many people in the Washington wine industry, and now you go off and you teach around the country and you talk to other trade and media that might know, you know, zero to very little about Washington. Like for you, like what are the key takeaways that make Washington's unique and special in the wine world? Why, why Washington? What's our, what's our story? Uh, Washington's story is, is pretty cool. I mean, there's there, I think more than almost any other wine region in the world, there's such a huge correlation between like big cataclysmic geological events and what the soils look like in the vineyard and what the actual degree of slopes the vineyard are and why are all these huge boulders like laying around the vineyard and you look at things like the Missoula flood and you look at things like volcanic eruptions and you have like direct specific things you can point at whereas like if you're in Burgundy, Burgundy is amazing. Obviously there's so much story there and the soils are so old and they're former ocean floor, but you can't say like, Hey, look at this big cataclysm that happened that made this. Uh, and Washington has like that in pretty recent history. Like, you know, we have the last ice age to go back to, to like point to a thing that really caused our, our viticultural landscape to be really a specific way. Um, and I think that's just, compelling and fascinating and we have a huge diversity of styles especially when you look at what's happening in the gorge right now versus walla walla yakima uh, all over there's just a lot of like interesting ways for people to express their their vision for what wine can be and we're seeing such a cool diversity of newer voices coming out in washington right now and people doing really high altitude plantings and bush vines and all sorts of really compelling things that are showing that we're not just cabin merlot but we have like so much to offer so 
Yeah, it's it's moving pretty fast here, man. Yeah. Changing every day. And I think if you, people thought the new Washington five years ago, it's like an entirely different. You got to take another look now. I am really compelled by it. I think there's just a lot of exciting things happening. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Jackson, it's been awesome to talk to you today. Like I'm still a little floored by the comic book drawing skills that you <laughs> unleashed on us. It's one but, more just to get that, just to get that uh, ballet and professional wrestling. Oh, man. Look at that. It's even got like, a, <laughs> wow. Uh, like I should have given him more of a Hulkamania. Like. <laughs> yeah. So th- thank you so much for, for listening. Uh, stay well, stay healthy. This has been Psalm Light, and we look forward to catching you next time with some of our other favorite wine pros around the country. It's been awesome to have you, Jackson. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Good talking to you.